Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, my name is Eric LeMay, and you're listening to the Literature Channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking with Nina Boutsikaris. Her new book is called I'm Trying to Tell You I'm Sorry, an Intimacy Triptych. And if you've ever said those words, I'm trying to tell you I'm sorry, you know they usually come at some crisis point in a conversation that's already underway. A misunderstanding has happened, or some confusion has started to mount. And so you try to reset and make things clear. Hey, look, I'm trying to apologize. Butsikaris makes this gesture throughout her book. Yet the you to whom she's speaking is not as simple as any one person. She speaks to friends and former lovers, artists and theorists, members of her own family, and, ultimately, to her younger self. Nor is she carrying on one conversation. She's trying to describe what it means to be a self, a female self, one living through loneliness, illness, desire, and the aspiration to make art. And finally, her book is no simple apology. It's more of a reckoning, an attempt to understand who we are in our brokenness and in our hopes. So if it is an apology... It's, apolo- it's an apology in the classic sense of the genre, like the one Socrates gives in Plato's famous dialogue where he defends the value of philosophy, or like the one that Sir Philip Sidney gives in his defense of poetry. In this classic sense, an apology is not merely apologizing, merely saying, I'm sorry. It's offering a full account. It's showing why, whatever the charge, whatever the crime, the case is more complex than those charging you could ever imagine, and that not only are you perhaps not guilty, and not only are those who accuse you perhaps not innocent, but also that guilt and innocence themselves are too simple as categories to make sense of our complex and messy lives. It takes an apology like Butsikaris gives to reveal that complexity and help us live with it and in it, rather than reduce it to some simple and false truth. Nina Boutsikaris, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I'm delighted that you're here today, and you've got a new book out. I'm trying to tell you I'm sorry. And I think one of the the interesting things that I'm looking forward to about this conversation is figuring out how to even accurately describe this to the readers that are going to encounter it, because it's it's not just playing by the rules of a memoir or a reflection. Um, there are so many different facets that are moving in between it. Um, mm-hmm. But at the beginning, there's this, there's this epigram that you use, and it's, it's really rich. And I think it sets, sets a way to start thinking about the book. Um, and, and if you don't mind, I'm going to read it. It's to learn to see the frame that blinds us to its interiors, to learn to see the frame that blinds us to its interiors 
is no small matter. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what that what that means and how that that becomes sort of the note that you want us to hear first as we go into the book? Yeah. Um, when I came across that, the way that I interpreted it, and I'm sure, I mean, in the context that I found that quote, which was in an essay um, about uh, performance and hiding and parading, which is a big theme of mine that I've always been obsessed with. Um, I sort of understood it as what this this narrator is trying to do, um, trying to uncover like why she is how she is and um, what that means, who's to blame, what part she plays in the world that she lives in and the, the things she participates in, um, how she believes that she uh, has power when really she's sort of just part of this very narrow system that ultimately takes power away from her or not. It's very, it's sort of this complex thing of like, what is binding me to, um, act or perform or do the way that this person does things. Um, and that's sort of what the whole book is like this, trying to figure out something, trying to, tell something trying to understand something um and i think the book is small and um it's very short and a lot of and the sections themselves are short the structure is sort of these like short collaged um juxtaposed bits of research with personal writing um and that in itself is um sort of stopping and starting, stopping and starting, trying to, trying to understand something. And it might look small. It might look like a small matter, but ultimately I think it's quite, quite serious, um, quite dire, I guess. So if, if you were going to describe sort of in the context of the, the life writing that's in there, the experiences that you're went through and grappling with, like, what this frame is that you're coming up against that you're, you're seeing as being aware of, like, what would that be? There's so many, I think like there's um, just the sort of basic struggle of the trap between wanting to evade the male gaze and also basking in it um, and how to escape that. And is that even what I ever would want? Um, there's also this, this frame of sort of mother daughter relationships and the legacies that are passed down between women, um, about performance and, um, pride and shame and beauty or whatever that might, I don't know, all the things in between, um, and, uh, and desire and power and how sex and loneliness, um, there's there's a frame there. How do I play into that frame? Um, it, it's I think it's less uh, black and white than than just one thing than one frame. I guess they all sort of inter interlink. I I appreciate that answer because I think your description of the richness and range of what you're grappling with. Um, gives us a sense of the book um and especially over and against like you said that it's a slim volume you know you can sit down and and read it in in an afternoon um but what you encounter is something that's far-ranging and reaping and and even in some ways it it feels to me like the book is grappling with 
a new kind of self or a new emergence. You know, the the opening short piece ends with the narrator being unable to sort of be the person she was or be the person in relationship to men that she imagined she was. And later in the book, you ask this question, it's what was it I used to tell myself about how to be? And that question just kind of hangs in the air. Um, So it seems to me like it's no less than a a sort of self-reckoning and figuring out what's on the other side. Totally. And I, and by the end, I mean, I think I even say in the book, like, you know, how can you end writing about your life when it's, it doesn't end at the last page. And so it's, it was hard for me to figure out how to end the book or close the book because uh, all that stuff is an ongoing process, obviously. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's both like sad and interesting for her and relieving to sort of move forward in life as someone who's maybe coming out from under an identity that's based off of like sort of manipulative, superficial, physical power um, relationships and sort of start thinking about things other than like, am I skinny enough? Um, Who wants to fuck me? Like, what am I, you know, where am I going to go tonight? Um, And it's, it's, I think very, it's sad to let go of that identity in some ways and also exciting and and just interesting to me. So yeah, there is this, this constant sort of like cyclical emergent stuff that's happening for her. And I think it's definitely like, I hope at least it comes across as like three different parts where in the beginning it's pretty angry and she's, she's uh, confused and angry. And then in the middle, she's sort of more interested and um and and then by the end curious and then by the end I hope she's at least more empathetic uh and for herself and for others um and ready to maybe move forward even though the ending is not necessarily like a big change a shift has definitely occurred for her throughout the three sections I think or for the different voices of the narrator as she moves through these different experiences. Yeah. There's never a moment in the book where some simplistic idea of what it means to be a person or a self or to be in relationship with others eclipses the complexity that you've captured of what it means to, to be a self and to be in relation. And it's pretty clear, especially in that first part that you grew up as someone who was just, saturated with the male gaze, with male desire, Um, you know, and and one way, one challenge it seems that's happening right there um, is that you're figuring out what it means to to suddenly be the subject that has been so long the object of desire for others. What does it mean for her to speak, to speak back? Yeah, totally. And I think there's definitely not a lot of her actually speaking back in the book. Um, or there's not a lot of people asking her anything directly in the book. A lot of it is just people talking to her. There's, li- I think there's literally like one person towards the end that she's standing on the bed with this weird guy. <laughs> and he's 
they're sticking glow in the dark stars up on her wall. And she's like, you know, put them wherever you want. And he says, but it's your wall. Where do you want them to go? And I think that that was actually the original ending for me. But then I realized I had some more stuff I wanted to put in Um, because it was the first time someone had really like asked her something. Um, And it felt really pivotal. I didn't realize until that point that no one had asked her anything in the book. She was just watching people and letting things sort of happen to her um, based off of what she thought would make her feel, if not loved, um, at least important and special. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So the opening, right, it's called Be Mind a Penthe. Mm -hmm. And most of us, maybe we heard that in Edgar Allan Poe, right? Um, (laughs) That might have been the one place we encountered it. Um, But it's about forgetting. And, And you write there, once I was like a potion. What does that mean? Yeah, so it is It is this potion, or it could have been this potion that you could make to forget all pain and sorrow. Um, and I, I had come across this painting. In the beginning when I was writing stuff, I, I didn't have a lot of research. Uh, like, I didn't have a lot of research giving me new information. I just kind of had my stories, and it was, like, pretty boring. And then I came across this painting um, which was supposedly this beautiful, this such a beautiful painting that it could make you forget sorrow that the writer called it a Pentheon. That really struck something in me and made me think about the ways that women, um, are treated or treat themselves, um, and sort of the roles we put on them in society. If, you know, regardless of if it's with men, with other women, with our mothers, with our daughters. Um, and I thought about, how much I had felt in my life, like that is what I was supposed to be if it was coming from my mother or if it was coming from, I mean, that particular line I'm talking about my mother, you know, when I was born, I was this thing that potentially could make her, you know, forget all pain. I was like perfect and loved. Um, And then later on that sort of becomes a more sinister desire, like, um, strangers on the street asking you, please, like, please smile for me, smile for me, smile for me. This sort of refrain that I think I was really interested in, like, what is the deeper need that is, that is there? And how does that relate to not wanting to forget sorrow, wanting to forget loneliness, um, death, even wanting to forget death. I mean, there's something, there's some legacy of, of deep, like archetypal fear um, that I started to think about in that idea of Nepenthe and how it tied in a lot of the experiences that I was trying to grapple with. I think one of the things I admire about the book, one of the many, right? One is that you, you've got this situation of, of the narrator, of, of the she that's in the book um, and the struggle she's going through, right? And all the time, you're aware of the artistry with which the author is constructing it as a kind of self reclamation and redemption or seeing through or reframing or agency. So, so there's that tension going on the entire time. And then there's also this real 
sense of wanting to look at the the richness of this experience and um you know i think in in this me too moment um a lot of the 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 male gaze has been highly politicized and rightly so and, and denied at, at, as a wrong or rightly recognized and wanting to be denied as a wrong um and one of the things you're wanting to do in this book is figure out what is the the complex human dynamic that results in that? So as you were saying, the sort of archetypal need to forget um, and that, that that's a human need that can cross gender barriers. Um, and so seeing yourself, here I am in this, this complex set of human needs that are also these sort of, you know, impossible positions to put young girls in or to, or to put teenage girls in um, and, and navigating all of that complexity um, without trying to let any of it go and even trying to figure out your own role in how that operates and yeah. to, to what extent it's agency or complicity, it's desire or yeah. force. I mean, it's such totally. a huge tangle. Yeah, totally. And that's why it's I mean, I think I'm trying is a really operative part of the title because I don't know, you know, ultimately I'm just a writer. I don't, I'm not a scholar and I, I'm so interested in, in, I'll, I'll, I'll always be interested in the, in that tangle. Um, it's definitely shifted for me, my interests, you know, I'm now, I wrote this book when I was in my mid twenties and I'm like 32 now. So things have definitely shifted for me. Um, but, uh, sorry, I just got locked out of my computer. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'll ever fully understand it, but I'll, I, I, I'm part of it. I'm definitely part of it. Um, and that's interesting to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else to really answer that or respond. It, it seems like one of the ways in which, which you do try to, to think through it is in conversation with, with other writers and other artists. Um, so, you know, writers like Virginia Woolf, um, would be one example or artists like Kiki Smith. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how that, that conversational and ultimately kind of collaborative effort at understanding works in your, your writing? Yeah. Um, it's it's a style that I picked up. I mean, I was I've been very influenced by other writers that do that. I mean, I think Maggie Nelson is just a good solid example that a lot of people can probably relate to. Um, but there's so many wonderful. I think I also read Jenny Ophel's book um, Department of Speculation around the time when I was starting to figure out who I you know my voice and all that. Um, and I was like wow, this is a way to access something that I can't say alone. And that also I don't want to say alone. I feel like there's so many, so many voices that are saying this in a more interesting way. I mean, also philosophy. Uh, I started to um, read things that I had never thought about before and realized that people were talking about the stuff that I was interested in, in a way that I didn't have, I didn't know how to access on my own. Um, so I feel like I'm, I've always been really interested in juxtaposition and, and collage and what can happen between 
um, text, like putting something I've written next to something someone else has written, and then the sort of whatever the bloom, the the seedling that comes up between those cracks. I think there's always something interesting there. So I would never want to write something just by myself again. I I don't know why I feel I need to be in commune with other voices that are dealing with the things that I'm dealing with, or even if they don't directly know, you know, that we're talking about the same thing or something. Um, I feel like there's so much opportunity to expand my thinking by including the voices of other and the art of other people. Um, and I just started to, uh, especially because I was thinking about performance and, um, and sort of like privacy versus like ex- exposing yourself and what is, what is not to be shown, what is to be shown and why um, I started thinking about female artists that I really admire and how much they, the reason why I admire them is because they expose themselves so much. And so I started looking into why that was. And there's some beautiful quote by Marina Abramovich's curator, um, Klaus something, I can't remember his name now, but he says that he thinks she needs the audience like air to breathe. Um, and I, I thought about how much I needed to connect or I needed to expose myself on the page and how much, how connected that made me feel to these other sorts of performers. So I started to dig around and think about, okay, who else is doing this? And um, there ends up being a lot of those references in the book to those kinds of people. That's very interesting. Earlier you were, you were talking about the arc the book makes from sort of anger over the three sections to, to new possibilities, you know, through curiosity. And one, one of the arcs that I noticed is at the beginning, there's a tremendous amount of, of talking about exposure and, and the way that that works, especially with men. And, and the exposure there seems sort of focused on the, the narrator, like who is she, what happens when she exposes herself or when men expect that. And then by the end, there's this different kind of exposure, which seems to be much more rooted in, in empathy and interest in the other. Um, and just to say that in a, a really straightforward way, there are just these devastatingly poignant portraits of the people that are coming in that, it, that you're serving in a market that you work mm-hmm. at. Um, and suddenly what you get in the book is not just a portrait of the the narrator and the she at the beginning, who I think is is the primary, along with the men that kind of haunt her in different ways. But then you suddenly get, I think the work becomes tremendously empathetic in its interest in the suffering of and the lives of and the, the kind of devastating realities of others as well. I hope so. I mean, I feel ultimately my my major obsession as like a creative person is, is ultimately loneliness and like an intimacy and how um, we all just the impossibility of fully ever knowing anybody. Um, And uh, I would, as, as she's going along struggling with her own lack of connection or, or how to connect or how to just be a person in the world. Um, she sees it everywhere and everybody else um, and, and wants so badly to take, to, to connect with people, but 
sort of just sits in a sits and writes about them instead. Um, and I, it's sort of like the best she can do in a way. I, and I think she's trying, she's trying in her own way to somehow, to somehow see other people um, in their, their own loneliness or whatever projected loneliness she might be putting onto them. That, that it, it's hard to articulate, right? Because the the dimensions of intimacy in the book are so multifaceted and rich. And in fact, the subtitle is an intimacy triptych, and yeah. the triptych refers, I'm assuming, to the three sections. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm wondering. So so having written this book or having lived through the experiences that that make up the core of this book you know, what, what's your take on intimacy now? What does it mean to be intimate with another person? Well, I think it's very layered and, and very complicated. Um, but ultimately what my interest going into it was that, um, my, my question was like, how can we feel so close to someone intimately who we don't really know or never will know and like what does it mean to how is physical intimacy like how does that make up for something else a different kind of intimacy does it and um and I don't know if I I think the the person that is in this book is someone who will always be a part of who I am but certainly I'm different now in many other ways, in many, in many of the ways. Um, I don't know. I, I think I'm still wondering, I'm still interested in it. And I'm still interested in this idea that you could create emergency intimacy when you need it. It's very easy to do. And ultimately, I don't want to say like, I, I feel like there's this cliche idea of like, Oh, like, bad sex or, you know, anonymous sort of sex is unfulfilling, but I don't necessarily think that that's true. Um, all the time, I think intimacy can be something that you can have agency about in whatever form you might need to have agency. I don't know, in the, in the, in the moment. So I don't know. I, I think, it's still really complicated and interesting to me. And um, I keep trying to write about it and think about it. I, th I think it was very helpful for me when you articulated the, the kind of connection or, or pull between intimacy and loneliness. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there were, you know, th there, there are scenes in the book that are about hookups and sex and things like that. Um, and as I'm reading them, I'm like, I feel so lonely. Like this is so sad, right? And then I I read the the scene in which this young man stumbles into to the market that I mentioned earlier, and he's just devastated and sobbing. And you create this visual portrait of sort of the disarray that he's in, and he's so lonely. But at that moment, I'm thinking he's probably you're probably the only one that ever 
has paid that much attention to him since, right? Like that th- there was yeah. this moment of intimacy in which I felt like another human being was heard and recognized in their pain. Um, think- and so they were v- reversals of what you'd expect. Yeah. I mean, I think that is what I've always loved about writing nonfiction. Um, weirdly, just sort of caring for other people that may never know that I'm caring for them in a way. I, it's hard to explain. I feel like I always, like, when I was younger, I didn't really know, like, what nonfiction was. I didn't know you could just, like, write stuff about the real world that wasn't, like, an essay about a topic. Um, but I was doing it, and I would sort of obsessively take notes about people that I saw, and it hurt. it just, everybody tugs my heart. I don't know. Everybody just makes me... And I, I'm sure a lot of other people, writers, creative people feel this way. Um, there's so much beauty and and sadness. Uh, there's that quote, like, life is sad. I think it's Norman Mailer. Life is sad. Life is gay. Life is gay because life is sad. And uh, I sort of see that in everybody. And I feel like it's a way for me to experience and create empathy um, in a way that's accessible to me or that when I, when I maybe can't do it in other ways, um, it's safe. And it also feels good to do. <laughs> yeah. Would you be willing to, to read that passage? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's, I think page 78, sort of in the middle, in the middle of a rush, a young man, maybe 20 comes up. Yeah. Um, In the middle of the rush, a young man, maybe 20, comes up to the register, sobbing. He looks like my younger brother, tall, with coarse blonde hair and a bony face. But this kid is hunched over, holding his stomach, and the neck of his shirt is stretched out, wet and shiny, like he's been wiping his nose on it. Please, he begs me, please, I just want one more drink. They cut me off, he says. He can barely stand. My mother just died. She was all I had. They said I was too drunk, but what the fuck do they know? She just died. They just called me and I never even got to see her. I look up at him and look around, but it's just me. Everyone who works here is apparently gone. Snot is dripping down his face and I don't know what to do. So I say what comes out, which is I'm so sorry. And I tell him that I can't serve him either. There are laws, but I'm so sorry, so sorry that maybe he should just go home. He says, imagine if the only person you love died, your mother, she's gone this morning. I can't imagine, I say, and it's true. But I really try, try, try to imagine. It's the least I can do. I think about what my mother would do. Maybe you should go home, I say. I don't have a home, he shakes his head. I'm staying with some people. I don't have anything. I'm just really sorry, I say again. And then do you want something to eat? Okay, he says, okay, I guess I'll have a cookie. What kinds of cookies do you have? I want that chocolate chip cookie. And he leans way over the counter with his whole body like he wants to lie down on it, tears still coming down his face. It feels like I want to touch him in his abandonment. I'm thinking about him eating that cookie the way my brother would eat a cookie. I'm thinking about the vulnerability of pleasure, of eating, the terrible sadness of watching someone else's lonely comfort. He pays for it, and I think, how could I be so cold? I can't shake his face, not for the whole day. He makes a slow lap around the market before pushing himself through the door and out into the hovering twilight, maybe the longest twilight this boy has ever known. 
when it goes on. <laughs> Thank you for that. Sure. <laughs> it does. It does. And, and I, I do want to ask you about the end and, and I'll say to any listeners saying, don't talk about the end um, that it's, it's, there's no spoiler alert. There's yeah, no, there's no. Um, that, that the beauty of the book is in the taking the arc of it and uh, the power of the book as, as we've been talking about is going through the, the changes with the narrator um, and how the, the author sets those up, how you set them up. But the end, um, so throughout the book, you're talking about different sorts of paintings and different works of art. Um, and then it ends with you kind of as a work of art with this description of a, a video. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit of, about that um, and, and how you saw it working as the note of closure for the book. Cause I, I was, Oof, yeah, I had that, I, I had a kind of, I mean, if you're interested in reading it, I, I think that would be cool too. Yeah. Um, but it, it's like, Oh wait, it, it made perfect sense to me in some ways that, you know, thinking about, art objects throughout the the work has been part of how you you're moving the meditative aspect of it forward. So to end with one in which you yourself are part of it, um, made sense. Well, I'm talking too much. Please tell me. No, I just, I don't, I mean, I think you're right and, um, good job, (laughs) but I, I, I think there's like this sense of like resignation. I mean, things have changed and she's sort of above them, but okay. So there's this one part of the, in the book where I, I quote Marina Abramovich and she says, um, she says that she's three different kinds of person, a strong willed daughter of political revolutionaries a needy and frightened child and someone else, someone spiritual and present floating above her human weaknesses. And she says she likes that last person the best, but it's okay to be all three. It's okay. She says, I forgive myself. Um, and so in trying to tell you, I'm sorry, the you becomes, I think her sort of by the end in a way. And she's both like resigned and above um, and is able to like forgive herself in a way, even while she feels <laughs> She still feels the things that she felt in the beginning of this journey or that uh, she learned as a child. Um, so, but, you know, I let him do this. I, I mean, I can just read the last part. Is that weird yeah, that to read the last <laughs> page? I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, yeah, so she she's like at this shooting range with this guy who is in the army. She's firing an assault rifle, yeah, right? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, she's firing an assault rifle with a paratrooper guy. Um and he's like really showing her how to do it. So he says he stands and holds my fingers positioning them around the mechanisms, demonstrating how to stand, touch the trigger with a light finger, breathe in, breathe out, lean into the butt, pull. You don't need to jam it. I do what he says. The gun is heavy and he has me rested on a waist-high cement block. One, two, three, four, five, six. A few puffs of sand explode beyond the wooden targets. My shoulder stings from the backfire. Ow, I say, and he laughs. Keep going, you're good, really. I'm impressed. I fold over the rifle once more, trying to make my body look the way he told me to make it look, or the way the boy's body had looked. It was just a posture. It was like anything else. 
gaze fixed on the center of the farthest target, I feel the pararescue standing safely behind me, feel him loving and hating the gun he had given me, loving and hating his own stocky body. And somewhere in between this, I feel finally both his immediate care and complete ambivalence towards me. How easy he makes it look. I'm not nervous anymore. I'm relieved. What I mean is that it's all over and no one got hurt. Not really. Not at all, actually. Truthfully, didn't he give me so much? I let him watch me tap the trigger, my own lips tightening against my own teeth. He takes out his phone and aims it at my body. In a few days, I will be far away, back in New York. Eventually, I will forget and then remember the morning with the IV when he almost needed me. I will write it down. I will recall him intimately, insofar as our unknowability allows. I will send my friends the video he took of me shooting the rifle, and then later I will send it to other boys so that they will also understand. So they will see how tough I am, how fearless. Someone once stood behind me and recorded the proof. So it ends there, and I think ultimately she's saying like someone recorded the proof, but she really recorded the proof because she wrote the book. And uh, there's this sort of this um, theme throughout of like archiving. actually initially was called intimacy archive um but there's this archiving that's happening um and this sense of like needing to get the record straight and needing to um say like look yes all these things like i did things that were bad or i participated in a way i participated and i had cruel thoughts and i didn't give a shit about myself or about people um but also other things um and hopefully it's like a, some sort of redemption, the kind of redemption that she might be hoping for can happen by the end because she did the recording of it. It's kind of how I see it. I do, I do too. I think it, it captures that nuance. And I think one of the ways that listeners might appreciate the dimensionality of that end is not only the kind of like, you know, so, so the the diminished reading would be something like it ends with another work of art, which is like hot chick fires assault rifle, right? Um, which is not what's happening because no. you get here is the scene that you're recording with all the interiority that the narrator was experiencing at that moment with all the dimensionality, but also, right, the the true existence of the the artifact, right? The thing that gets archived is the narrative in the book that you've just been reading, Mm -hmm. which to just put one more point up there is, is in that particular passage, the, the guy in it has said, just please don't write a story about me. Right. Um, So the, the narrator is making her own decisions about what gets involved and who tells the story of her life. And it's her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and what's so great about that is nothing is made simple. There's no simple sort of heroic narrative or, no. yeah. yeah, definitely um, not. And I think that was difficult because I, I'm not really that interested in like narrative arcs. I, I, it's, I'm much more interested in like thinking and trying. I, that's why I like the essay. Um, and I, I think a lot of my cohorts would understand this um sometimes that's not what an essay is supposed to be and I was 
trying to again <laughs> um do that in in a book form and see like how can i extend this like constant trying and circling and like without saying like here's a neat narrative arc and then she like overcomes something or because she didn't and it's not real um and while i i do think that there's some parts of the book that are like sort of surreal and not actually real but very obviously not real hopefully um what's real is that things don't just sort of end neatly. And I hope that that's okay for other, for readers. <laughs> I think in my own work and, you know, in reading works like this, I find that readers will respond in multiple ways, but sometimes they're very frustrated because the expectation is that you get tidiness. Yeah. And then sometimes there's a kind of appreciation for, for staying in the problem and the difficulty which is life, right? Mm -hmm. Which you say doesn't end when the book ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, given this this interest in staying with things and thinking about it, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? You said there's about a seven year gap between yeah. the experiences that you're writing now and and where you are. Um, so so what are the what are you what are you currently thinking about? What are your current projects? Um, I'm really I'm working on something that actually might become fiction only because I don't really feel comfortable with like how much I'm starting to make up that happened in it. Um, so not comfortable with calling it nonfiction, although it's very much based on my own experiences. So I'm, I'm really interested in this concept of loneliness um, in like what it means to be modern and how much to me that is linked to the idea to being alone and uh, especially when it comes to creativity um, because the word creative has become a noun now and uh, after I left grad school I was like applying to all these jobs that were looking for creative people or creatives and uh, I didn't and even though I sort of was like I'm creative I have a degree to prove that I'm creative um, I don't fit into what a creative is in our society. So I, and I started to think about that and I've been doing a lot of research about late capitalism and, um, and loneliness and reading some, some very weird, interesting philosophy about, um, <sighs> placenta, uh, nihilism and how, is this a long, this is a long wormhole to go down, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested in creativity and isolation. It's and, too intriguing now yeah. not to go down it. <laughs> well, I don't know what I'm doing with it yet, but I just know that the main sort of story is, uh, this, this woman and her mother, um, they have a sort of strange relationship and this girl is trying to figure out how to be an artist in a world that calls creatives is you know, as a noun. And, um, her mother is a an actress, which my mother is. Um, and then she sort of starts to figure out what it actually means to live a creative life by learning to see her mother in a new way. Um, but meanwhile, there's all these weird things about capitalism and loneliness and sexting. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's what I'm working on now. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully it'll be a little bit longer. Than this this little book, yeah. 
Well, I hope that when it comes out, you'll come back and talk with us about it. I hope you will have me. Yeah. I hope it gets done. <laughs> Nina Butsikaris, thank you for being on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And thanks for reading it so carefully and having such wonderful questions. Oh, I recommend it to everybody listening. Thank you. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Nina Butsikaris, author of I'm Trying to Tell You I'm Sorry, an Intimacy Triptych on the New Books Network.